So again, happy Palm Sunday to everybody. We're in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1 to 7. And if you want to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1 to 7. And uh, join with me here as we look through this next section that we're in as we go through verse by verse in our study through First and Second Peter here today. Now, it was interesting. Um, it was Palm Sunday, but because of a sore throat, five-year-old Johnny stayed home from church with a sitter. Now, when the family returned home, they were carrying several palm fronds. Now, Johnny asked them what they were for. Well, people held them over Jesus' head as he walked by, his father told them. Johnny replies, wouldn't you know it? The one Sunday I don't go to church and Jesus shows up. How tragic that would be, wouldn't it? Well, listen, it's Palm Sunday for us here, and I pray that Jesus is indeed showing up right where you are, regardless if you're at home, sitting on the couch, or wherever you are, whether you're in your pajamas or not, which I do envy most of you if you are, that's all good. But here's the fact and reality is that Jesus wants to meet with us right here today, right where you are, and I pray that you are excited and ready to meet with him here. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time together here, that we can worship you, Jesus. Lord, that you are our King, and we sing out Hosanna. Hosanna, Lord, thank you for salvation we have in you. And I pray right now as we look into your word here, that, Lord, you would teach us, and indeed that you would reveal yourself, Lord, who you are, and again, to see all that you have done and accomplished for us, that we would be those resting all the more in you and grateful for you, Jesus, and life we have in you. So lead us now, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Now, our study in First Peter, hasn't it been incredible just to see how wonderfully appropriate and applicable it has been for these times that we are finding ourselves in these days? It's interesting days. And you know what? Let me just quickly remind, I'm going to put another plug here because we want to take some questions, if you have any, um, at the end of the message. And Questions that could be just in a biblical, you know, category of any sort, uh, but also just kind of maybe talk about some of the things going on in the world and things that you might want clarity on. And so if you've got any questions, go ahead and, and throw them out to us here. You can put them on our uh, website, do it anonymously there at riversidecalvary.com forward slash questions or even in the YouTube chat window you can do that but send us your questions if you have any and pastor randy and i are going to take some time to just dialogue on some of the things going on in the world after the message and take some questions if you have them for us so but our study of first peter has just been so incredibly appropriate for these times that we are are finding ourselves in because peter is writing to christians going through suffering and uncertainty sounds familiar right and it's in this chapter that this topic of suffering really reaches its climax. But all through the epistle here, we're also seeing that though there may be seasons of suffering and hardship, it's balanced with the great hope that we are to have in our Heavenly Father, in our Savior who has come to redeem us and to give us this hope in Him. So this is balanced now with the suffering and the hope that we have in Jesus. You see, this world and the problems within it are all temporary. We're to be living as citizens of heaven. And our ultimate destination is awaiting us as we continue holding on to Jesus 
and trusting in him through each and every day that we live here in this world. And the great thing is that we are never alone through these times. Aren't you glad for that? That we are never facing these hardships alone. Jesus is right there with us. Not only has he gone before us in that he has suffered in the same way, but in an even greater way, he has suffered for us. But he's going to continue now to lead us through. If he suffered for us initially, he's going to continue to walk with us and lead us through all these times. And it gives us assurance for today and hope for tomorrow. I love what Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 to 6 says, For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. Isn't that good? Now, as we pick up our study in 1 Peter chapter 4, we see that familiar connecting word with what we've been looking at previously. Peter continues to tie this all together as we look now at Jesus and suffering. All right? It says there in chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore... Since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So what is Peter taking us back to now with that word therefore that we see right at the beginning in verse 1? Therefore, well, he takes us back I think, to verse 18 of chapter 3, where he says there, for Christ also suffered once, right? For sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. But then also in verse 22, we read, Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. So I think those two verses are very key, which Peter very well, most likely is connecting now in our, in our next chapter here, chapter 4, connecting this thought. Therefore, since Christ has suffered for us, And reminding us what he's done once for all, that he might bring us to God. And in so doing, he's defeated all principalities and powers. Everything that might come against us, Christ has already provided the victory for us, right? So this is what Peter is referring to, looking at, and he's now seated in heaven at the right hand of God. You know what that means to, to sit down? It means that the work is finished. It's complete, right? When you sit down after, I just had a long day of work at my place yesterday doing, doing a lot of work out there. And I was so excited to go and sit down. When I sat down, it meant the work was complete. I mean, there's actually a lot more to do, but the work for that day is complete at least, right? But when Jesus sat down in heaven, we know that the work is complete once for all. Because he's done it all for us. Everything has been completed to forgive us. And to bring us now into right standing with God. It's accomplished through Jesus. So Peter is reminding us, therefore, since Christ has done these things for us, you too are to be ready to live for him. So what does Peter say there? Well, he says in verse 1 then, to arm yourselves also with the same mind. Arm yourselves. I love that picture, arm yourselves. What is a call to arms? It means to be ready to defend yourselves, guard yourselves. It's a summons to engage in active hostilities. And this is the plight of these Christians as they are learning to deal with a hostile world. Listen, it may, be, it may not be your situation today, but it may be. It might be that you are going through these very hostile things that seem like they're coming against you, mounting up upon you. 
And if you're not experiencing that today, it may very well come in the next day, in a, in a later day. But Peter says, arm yourselves. Arm yourselves with what? Well, with that same mind as Jesus. And what was that mind? The mind that was willing to come to this world in a humble way to give up the, the luxuries, the glories of heaven and to come to this world like us, to be one of us and to die for us. That's the mind of Christ that was willing to give it all up and to humble himself and to suffer and die. Peter says, have that same mind. The mind that was the, willing to come and be mistreated, misunderstood, and to suffer and be killed. Again, we've, we've covered that verse quite a bit as we've gone through our study in 1 Peter. That verse from Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 to 8. And it is a very important verse to let us sink in because Paul says there, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. That's what Jesus did for us. So, so Peter says, equip yourselves now with that same resolve, with that same thinking, with that same mind of Jesus. Have that same attitude and thinking now in the things that you're going through. Don't let the things that you're facing right now begin to put doubt, worry in your mind. Rather, let these things say, I'm going to arm myself with the mind of Christ. It says, I'm willing to take all these things because ultimately through these things, God can be glorified. That's why Christ came and humbled himself was ultimately to the glory of God. So take a position of action where you are willing to suffer And we can do so because of a couple motivating factors that we see right here in the word. First of all, we see what's been done. And secondly, we see what will be done. What has been done? Well, Peter says, and he points it out several times, that Jesus has suffered for us. So you might think, man, me me becoming a Christian should kind of absolve me from any kind of suffering. I mean, I'm a child of the king now. I don't, I shouldn't be having to face difficulty and hardship as a Christian. We can think that sometimes, right? But when we begin to realize Jesus suffered himself and he did so for me, why, why should I expect to then not have to go through similar kinds of things? Sometimes we might think that this punishment or, or evident, uh, the struggles that we go through is evidence that we're doing something wrong. But here's what we're called to do, to simply follow Jesus. And if he went through suffering, then perhaps it's quite reasonable to think that we will too. And because he's gone through these things, we too can have that assurance that he will be that ever-present help to lead us through. Now, I love what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10 to 11, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and, and notice this, and the fellowship of his sufferings. Oh, we focus on the first part, that I might know that power is resurrection. Lord, give me more of that. Easter's coming. Hallelujah. But Paul says that I might also know the fellowship of his sufferings. And we're like, Paul, what is the matter with you, man? Who would want that? I don't want that. But Paul understood something. Let me just read that, finish that verse. He says, being conformed to his death, that by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. You see, Paul understood something profound here that I think we all need to understand too, is that there's a sweetness that comes out of our sufferings that tend to strengthen us, but also 
have a deeper understanding of what Jesus went through. And what happens when we begin to have a deeper understanding of what Jesus went through, it begins to bind us together in closer unity and intimacy with Jesus. You know that to be true when you've gone through a hardship and you encounter somebody else that has gone through the very same hardships. There is now this kind of a bond that unites you together. There's a fellowship that you enjoy with that person that you may not have in the same way with others that haven't experienced what you've experienced. And so when Paul says that I may know the fellowship of his sufferings, he's saying, oh, that I might grow in a greater intimacy with Jesus because of what he's gone through for me. And as I go through hardships, well, it's going to unite us together in a greater way. So Jesus works through and uses those kinds of trials and sufferings we encounter. So we're motivated now by the realization that Jesus has suffered for us so that we can continue on now in our suffering with hope and a better understanding. But secondly, as I said, there's a couple motivating factors for us here to continue on to you know, arm ourselves and take that position willing to suffer. First of all, it's like I said, because of what's been done, but secondly, because of what will be done through it. See, what does Paul say, or sorry, Peter say at the end of verse one? That the person that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. I like that. Ceased from sin. Sin begins to have less power in my life. Now, some might look at this as though it means that a person can become almost sinless if he suffers through enough, Right? And, and there are those that inflict needless suffering on themselves, thinking that it's going to make them more holy or pure. And so they almost welcome suffering. They will deny themselves of certain things. They will beat themselves, whip themselves, get married, whatever it takes for a feeling of suffering. All right. And there are those that want to self-inflict these things, thinking it's going to make them more righteous or pure. But this has nothing to do with the removal of sin. Let me just make that clear. This is not talking about a removal of sin. What Peter is getting at, I believe, is that the person that is willing to suffer, and, and remember, Peter's thought here throughout this epistle is about suffering for righteousness, for standing up for Jesus. The person ready to suffer in that way shows that he no longer has any interest in sin. That he's no longer walking with a desire for sin. He's choosing to live a life of righteousness that may cause him to be persecuted rather than continue the life of ease and comfort in sin. You see, at the very core of sin is self. See, sin is all about looking to gratify our own fleshly desires. Just think about that. When we sin, we're doing so for what we can get out of it. Right? I mean, lust, selfishness, anger, when you blow up, You're doing so because somebody did something that you didn't like. You felt disrespected and you thought, nobody's going to treat me this way. And you get angry because it's feeding self. Sin is completely feeding off of yourself and your desires. And so we think, man, I'm not going to let this happen. I'm not going to. So, so much of sin becomes an outburst of our own flesh, our own selfish nature but for the one who has suffered in the flesh well they've ceased from sin you see if we're willing to live this life for jesus and receive occasional suffering 
then it's obvious that we're no longer living for sin and self. Because if we were, we'd be doing whatever we could to avoid suffering and enjoy a life of comfort, which naturally feeds self. So this is what Peter's getting at. If proclaiming Jesus got people upset at us and wanting to maybe disown us or disfellowship with us, well then, if we're living for sin, we would tone it down. We'd say, oh yeah, that's not worth it. I don't want to give up my friends if, if it means me you know, talking for Jesus. I, I'm going to just limit that then. But if you choose Jesus over comforts and worldly benefits, if you're ready to suffer for Christ, then it is obvious that sin no longer is your primary focus or priority anymore. That's what Peter means by those that have ceased from sin. And he sees suffering oftentimes begins to put things into that proper perspective for us. It becomes the catalyst for us to choose to say no to sin. To say, I'm not going to live for sin any longer. I'm going to live for Jesus. And whatever that might mean, whatever that might bring into my life, I'm okay with that because Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. And so I'm going to live my life for him regardless of what that might mean. Now, moving on to verse 2, Peter just continues to kind of play on this idea of ceasing from sin, of saying no to sin. He says that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. You see, we all have that choice to make each and every day whether we're going to live for the flesh, which is that old nature that follows after the pursuits of, you know, the flesh the very characteristics before coming to Christ, or our other choice is to live and walk by the Spirit, which is being ruled by the the new nature, you see. We once were flesh-driven. There there wasn't an option for us before coming to Christ. It was like one choice every day, and that was to live according to the flesh. That's just how we were living. Ephesians 2 talks about that, right? That we're just walking according to the course of this world looking to gratify the flesh. But when we gave our life to Jesus, what happened? We became born again. And we're given that new nature, the life of the Spirit. Now, the sad thing is that the old nature isn't completely eradicated or removed just yet. It's still there, right? That old nature, yes, it's been put down, but it's fighting every day to get back to its prominent position that it once enjoyed. The flesh wants to continue to be boss. But we have a new boss, the spirit. And so there's this kind of conflict that goes on. That's what Paul talked a lot about, right? In in Romans 7, the things that I want to do, I don't do. The things that I, I don't want to do, those things I find myself doing. Because there's this conflict going on between the flesh, the old nature, and the spirit, the new nature. So we have a choice to make each and every day. Are you going to live for the lust of the flesh? Or are you going to live by the Spirit and so fulfill the will of God, as Peter says there? There was an old Cherokee chief who's teaching his grandson about life. And he says, a fight is going on inside me. He said to the boy, it's a terrible fight and it is between two wolves. One is evil. He is anger, envy, sorrow, regret, greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, inferiority, lies and false pride, superiority, ego. The other is good. He is joy and peace, love, hope, humility, kindness, benevolence, generosity, truth, compassion, and faith. 
This same fight is going on inside you and inside of every other person as well. Well, the grandson thought about it for a moment and then asked his grandfather, well, which wolf is going to win? To which the grandfather said, the one which you feed. And it's so true in our lives. Are we sowing to the spirit? Are we feeding the, the spirit or are we sowing to the flesh? Because the things that we are sowing to is that which is going to become more strong in our lives and, and seek to become more dominant. But Peter says, oh, man, that you would no longer live the rest of his time, this time that you have on earth. Remember, Peter is talking to these people as other pilgrims and sojourners that this is not your home. You're here just for a time, right? For the rest of your time in the flesh, for the lust of men, but says that you live for the will of God. So what is now, what does it look like to live for the will of God in our lives? Well, it means that you're no longer chasing after the pursuit of your flesh. You're no longer feeding that old nature. Sin no longer is dominating in your life. Remember what the word of God says in in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Isn't that great? And what does sanctification mean? Sanctification means to be set apart. In other words, you're no longer living like you once did, but you're living distinct and different, set apart from sin and where you are now set apart unto God. Where you're living for God. We are saying, I don't want to live for the, the flesh and sin any longer. I'm going to separate myself from that. But I'm going to separate myself unto God and live for Him. That's what sanctification is. And that is the will of God, as we see in God's Word. Notice what Peter goes on to say in verse 3. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Oh, man. <laughs> sure remember the days before I came, became a pastor. Man. Uh, I, and I did none of those things. I'm just letting you know. Boy, those were not a mark of my past. But for a lot of you, that was very natural. These were the things that a lot of people were just living for. Now, many of Peter's audience that he's writing to had come out of that kind of a lifestyle. Many of you had spent enough time in pursuing the things that you thought were going to bring pleasure and satisfaction and fun. But guess what? You found it to not really pay off very well, didn't it? Oh, there might be seasons of pleasure in it, but you know, ultimately these things can never bring lasting joy in your life. It wasn't until you came to Jesus that you realized, man, I was missing it. I thought, this is what life was all about. But when I came to Jesus, suddenly I realized that he is actually the life. And he's come to give us abundant life or the full life, the complete life. And we realized that all these things that so many people in the world today are living for can't ultimately satisfy. And it was only through a new life in Jesus that he began to see how incomplete and empty these things were and how miserable you were in them. Until you came to him and found what life is really all about. And the joy and peace that we can have. So Peter's point is that we should be living each day now. Pursuing Christ and accomplishing God's will. Don't waste another day. Even if it's days that are filled with sorrow, suffering or shame. Even if they're days that aren't how you would have drawn it out. Don't waste another day living for these things. Because when you're in Christ... It's still better 
than any of these former days that were characterized like we see there in verse 3. Only Jesus can bring true and lasting joy and peace and pleasure in this life. So stay holding on to him regardless of what you might be encountering in this day. Hold on to Jesus and enjoy the life we have in him. Moving on to verse 4, it says, In regard to these, they think it's strange that he do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. Now, sadly, those things that we read about in verse 3 that that Peter says in regard to these, in regards to those things, they think it's strange that you don't do it. Now, sadly, in this time, in the Roman Empire, these things were all commonplace. These were very normal ways to just go and, and, and live in this kind of uh, of debauchery in, in this kind of, uh, of hedonism, that was sort of the, the norm and the culture during the Roman Empire. Quite sad. But I love how Peter paints this. He says, you know, that they think it's strange that you don't run with them in the same flood of dissipation. That's an interesting kind of picture, this flood of dissipation. Because that's, again, speaking of this wild living that is brought on by the pursuit of sin. But what it does is it comes upon you like a flood and and eventually just drowns you. It robs you of life. There's nothing good that comes of it. Now, what's interesting is that when you are not living this way, it kind of stands out. And people begin to look at you and wonder why you're not gratifying these sinful desires. And as they see you you're not doing the same things they are, what happens? Well, they're going to begin to turn on you. They're going to begin to revile you. They're going to begin to slander you and speak evil of you. Now, they will often do this because they're simply trying to silence their own conviction, which is clearly now being heightened by your refraining from these things. When they see somebody that doesn't have to do those things, suddenly their conviction gets a little bit stronger and louder. The wonderful thing is, there's a a moral compass inside each person. It's called a conscience, and it's given by God. It aids in showing people what is right and wrong. That's how a lie detector picks up on these things, right? But instead of correcting that moral compass when they see that it's out of line, they would rather silence the moral witness that's exposing their sin. And the way they try to silence the moral witness is like what Peter says, it's by speaking evil of you. It's trying to malign your character. It's trying to slander you. They think that these are things that will discredit you so they can continue on living this life of sin without feeling this kind of conviction that they no doubt feel. They're going to try to rock you and get you off your game. But what are you to do? Well, it's what Peter says in, in verse 1 of chapter 4. Arm yourselves with that same mind as Christ because he too was slandered. He was falsely accused, but he took it knowing that he was right in the will of God and would ultimately be exalted through it. So we're to arm ourselves, people. Have that same mind of Christ because he went through these very same things. Now, there may be times you wonder how these people are getting away with it. How can they continue on with what they're doing? They're so wrong. It seems like nothing's happening to them. Maybe we begin to think, maybe I could just join in with them because it seems like everything's okay. But notice what Peter says next. Look at verse five. He says this, they will give an account to him 
who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. It says they're going to give an account to him. So many people live with that motto of just, you know, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. It's right there in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 32. But guess what? Everything we do today matters. Do you realize that, my friends? Everything we do today matters. It matters in eternity because everyone is going to stand before the judge, the creator of this world. He's God. We know that. And you will need to give an account. You will need to give an account of your life. What you do matters. Now, here's the thing. You can put things off and and wait till then. When you stand before God after you die, which at that point is going to be too late, or you can do something about it now. Because you see, Jesus came to this world to die on a cross and pay the penalty for your sins that he might bring forgiveness to you. When he died on the cross, when he went to the cross, he took the very judgment of God for you so that you would not have to be judged at a later day. But you can receive that judgment now through Jesus. But here's what you need to do. You need to repent of your sin, which means to turn from your sin, to say, this is the wrong way. I want to go God's way. It's turning from your sin, but turning to Jesus in faith and trust that his sacrifice, his dying on the cross, his resurrection paid the price for your sin to bring forgiveness and healing and to bring newness of life to you. Have you done that today? Because when you put your trust in Jesus today, it means that your sins have already been judged. They've already been taken care of. So when we stand before God in that day, it's no longer to judge you for your sin, to balance out whether you've done enough good in your life, to to outweigh your bad, as a lot of people are, are hoping in today. No, it's saying that my sins were taken care of at the cross. You stand before God in that day When you are in Christ, you stand before him in Christ's righteousness, not your own. See, it's already been taken care of for you. If you will receive that, if you will turn from your sin and turn to Jesus today. If you're listening today to this this live stream and you do not know Jesus as your Savior, you have not made that decision to give your life to Jesus, to allow your sins right now today to be taken care of, I invite you to pray a simple prayer to say, Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and I need to find that forgiveness of sin. I need to turn to you who has paid the price for my sin. Jesus, I give my life to you. Would you come in and be my Lord and Savior? If you'd pray that prayer today, you become a child of God. Your sins are taken care of so that when you die, you know you have the assurance now of eternal life because you're a child of God. You're born again. You become new in him through faith in Jesus. But these people that don't do that, they're going to one day eventually stand before God as Peter is addressing here, that they're going to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Now, Peter brings up another point that some have misunderstood and misapplied when he says there in verse six, for this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead. That brings a bit of confusion to some because they think, 
Does this mean that those that have died now, the gospel has opportunity to be preached to them after they're dead to where they can make that decision, where they can realize, oh boy, I really planned this out wrong. Man, I really misjudged that whole scenario because I'm sitting in Hades now and this isn't comfortable. So let me respond to the gospel now. Some people think that, but that's not the case. There is no opportunity to get right with God once you die. What Peter is addressing here is that this is why the gospel went out to those people that were dead. They weren't dead when the gospel went out. They weren't dead when they received the gospel. But at the time of Peter writing this, they have now died. But they've died in hope because they received the gospel. And so now they are enjoying life forevermore with Jesus in heaven. This is what Peter is addressing and getting at here. Even though they were judged by people in this life, perhaps a reference to their suffering and and martyrdom, well, they received eternal life and are now living with God in the spirit, as Peter says there in verse six. What Peter's getting at again for all of us is that whatever you may go through in this life, if you're in Christ, it's all gonna be worth it. Romans eight, verse 18, 2 Corinthians four, verse 17, just talks about how, oh man, it's gonna be so much more worth it for us. Whatever suffering we might endure in this world, it's going to be worth it. And so we need to have a proper perspective on these things because this life is temporal. And guess what? Jesus is coming back again soon. Notice what Peter says in verse 7. We'll end with this verse. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. When I look at all that's going on around us, It just causes me all the more to get excited for the fact that Jesus is coming soon. So many things are beginning to line up with what we see in the Bible as being, you know, prophetic end times scenarios. When I see what's going on in the world, man, I'm just excited. Because I think Jesus is preparing us for when he's going to come again. Now, these are not to worry us, but to excite us to realize that we may be living in those days where we very well might see the rapture of the church because so many things that we read about in Daniel and Revelation, things pertaining to the end, are going to come into play after the rapture of the church. And it's the rapture of the church that is going to be such a catalyst for those things coming into play. And we see the setup of so many of these things right now. So I believe, boy, the time is short. So Peter says there in verse 7, be serious. And watchful in your prayers. When he says be serious, it's that idea of being like sober-minded. Again, thinking rightly, arm yourselves with the mind of Christ. And be watchful in prayer. Watch what's going on, but do so through prayer. Because it's in prayer that we just can bring all these things to the Lord. Where we don't have to have an anxious heart, but we can rest in what he's doing. Be watchful. You know, this Palm Sunday that we celebrate here today was a time that Jesus came riding into Jerusalem. And guess what? It was a time that was prophesied so exactly and perfectly. Because going back to, to well, let me read to you, let me read to you in, in Luke chapter 19, starting verse 37. We'll put this up on the screen here for you. But this is what we see happening here, this great passage for Palm Sunday. Then, As he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. 
peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. You see, Jesus coming to them was something that they should have known. How? Because of Daniel's 70-week prophecy that was given for the people of God, the nation of Israel. It's there in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 25. And Jesus basically calls him out on the saying here in Luke 9, if you had known, even you, especially in this, your day. This should have been a day that they were watching for, that they were understanding, that they were sober-minded over and serious in expecting. But they missed it. You see, Daniel chapter 9 lays out, and I, I was going to put some of these, these dates and things in, in my notes, and I don't have it there, so I'm going to kind of try from memory, and I always mess this up, but we'll see how we do here. But Daniel is given 70 weeks, which are referring to a group of seven years, 70 groups of seven years, 490 years. 69 of them were given now that were to lead up to the time of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. Now, it says, from the time of the decree to go and rebuild, you know, the, the temple and the city walls, right? Which we know in Nehemiah chapter 2, King Artaxerxes gives the decree to go and rebuild the city walls. Until, Daniel says, until the coming of the prince. Which is speaking of <clears throat> the time that Jesus would come. And it was there on Palm Sunday that Jesus comes riding in for the first time, allowing himself to be publicly proclaimed as the Messiah, to be, to be worshipped as the Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's the first time he allowed that to happen. So, in other words, 69 years, break it down into days using the Babylonian calendar, it's 173,880 days. So we know that from the decree of Artaxerxes in Nehemiah 2, you start counting down 173,880 days from that point until when Jesus came riding into Jerusalem, which was... I think like April 6, 32 AD, something like that. I could be off on that. But when he came right in Jerusalem, it was exactly 173,880 days. In other words, Jesus says, this should have been a day that you were watching for and knowing. But they failed to see it. And so Peter's addressing for us right now. He's saying, listen, the end of all things is at hand. Now I know what you're thinking. Well, Peter said that like some 2,000 years ago. Hasn't things just kind of continued going on? Well, I think God has established it in such a way that in every generation, we would live with an expectancy of his return. It's the imminent return of Jesus, meaning that nothing has to happen for him to come again. That's why I believe in the rapture of the church. Because if it's the second coming of Christ, well, we're going to know the things that are going to be having to unfold beforehand. But nothing has to happen before the rapture of the church. I believe that we're living in those days, though, where we're beginning to see all these events playing out, things coming into play that are setting ourselves up for that tribulation period. And we're going to talk a bit about some of these things here. Um, let, me, let me invite Randy up right now, because we want to kind of dialogue about some of these things here and um, address some of these things. And, and again, if you've got questions about some of these things, would you just go ahead and fire them out to the email and I'm going to be looking at that right now or if you've got some um, that you want to put on the YouTube chat you can go ahead and do that 